Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Tuparev Technologies. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. Um, the the space world rolls on. I, I don't know if you've noticed. I, I have this thing where once we finish an episode, I get a little mental reset, and then the space news just starts collecting again for mm-hmm. the next episode. And we finished last time, 14 days ago, and... I felt like the moment that we finished, just an avalanche of space news began to happen and didn't stop. It just has been a very busy December for space stuff. It it has been capping a very busy year. I mean, Mm -hmm. COVID definitely slowed down some things, but in terms of, I think, the beginning of the year, the beginning of the pandemic, we thought, you know, how busy would this industry be? I think a lot more has happened than I definitely anticipated. Oh, sure. SpaceX has launched a mission, you know, launched a rocket uh, on an average of like every other week for mm-hmm. the whole year. SpaceX, here's a good one. SpaceX just did a satellite launch. They did a Sirius XM satellite radio launch. Um, that was the seventh launch for the first stage rocket <laughs> on that mission. It's it's uh, it's sooty. It's it's kind of discolored now, but it is it is emblematic of the idea of of reducing the cost of access to space by reusing hardware that SpaceX has really pioneered, and it's a great little story that isn't even in our document because there's too much other stuff to talk about. So I'll throw that out there, but that's an example of the relentless pace of space in 2020, even with the slowdown due to COVID. COVID didn't stop space in the way it stopped a lot of other industries, but it definitely slowed it down. And so I would anticipate that 2021 could be a pretty uh, spectacular year for space because 2020 really was as bad a year as 2020 has been for so many other things. It's actually been kind of a great space year. So let's uh, let's start with sample return missions. Yeah, let's do it. There's, there's so much going on. Um, so Hayabusa 2, which we have been talking about for a long time on this show, uh, went to Ryugu, the asteroid. It was a sample return mission. Takes a long time to get there, long time hanging out there, long time returning from there. But uh, it now last time, 14 days ago, we said that they were in the process of returning the samples to Earth, and that happened. The sample return container landed in the Australian desert near Woomera. This is very remote country in Australia. This is like used by the Australian military for tests and stuff. There's nothing out there, uh, as is true of a lot of Australia. Um, they they <laughs> just, were there. They had little radio, little trans, radio transmitters. Yeah, just uh, snakes and spiders. Um, and it was found almost immediately, which is great, before the drop bears could get there. And whisked back to Japan. They actually they said within 100 hours they wanted it back in Japan uh, because they worried that Earth air might leak in. So they did a bunch of sort of like tests and, and tried to extract if there was any gas that had, was in the container. And then they wanted to take it back to Japan. There's a whole like protocol they had because they were worried about it being, even though it was sealed, that it wouldn't be a perfect seal. Mm-hmm. And, they, and so time was of the essence. They took it back to Japan and we just saw... I saw it earlier today, so this just happened. They, they, uh, the Japanese Space Agency posted some pictures of the sample collector opened, and there's like, it's like sandy black rocks in there, but they, they were stolen from an asteroid. So that's pretty great. And now the uh, science starts and the analysis of, of those samples 
from an asteroid. Not the first that time that this has happened, but uh, it's a it's another it's rare. These are very rare that we get something like this. I think this is the second or third of these deep space sample returns. So pretty great. Good job to the Japanese Space Agency. And uh, thanks for uh, the desert, Australia. <laughs> thanks for the target. You need a big empty space for these sorts of things. You don't want them coming down in a city. That's that's bad news. No, I mean, ideally not. I mean, it's small, but yeah, it's not great. You really wanted to land with the snakes and the spiders. Flies through the solar system and gets hit by a cab in New York. That's that's a painful wow. land. Wow. That's bad luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, much more will be coming out of this return mission as time goes on. We'll see more about it. And like other sample return missions, this material will feed a bunch of scientific research. And so we'll see papers. We'll be talking about this for quite some time. For sure. But it's not the only sample return mission uh, that we should talk about. This sample has not yet been returned, Stephen. That's true. It's in. It's uh. It's what the U.S. Postal Service calls uh, in transit. Oh, yeah. Awaiting delivery. It is. It's awaiting delivery, in fact. So, talked about this last time. Chang'e 5, latest Chinese space mission. Did you know that China is the only country to have landed, soft landed something on the moon since 1976, by the way? Really? <laughs> it's pretty wild. Yeah. I guess that's right. And only only really these last th- these last three Chang'e missions have done it. Wow. They have the U2 uh, rover that's up there and stuff. Um yeah. So, yeah, not since a Russian sam- a Russian lander in late 76. Wow. Has there been a soft land? So there was a long gap and now and you know, there are lots of plans to go back, but right now China is the only one sending the stuff up there. And people have tried, right? There was the Israeli uh, yeah, project we- and India Space Agency both had failures. Right. Oh, man, I got an update about it, the Israeli thing, too. But we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. There's so much news. But let's stay with China for now. Okay. Okay. Uh, stay, in, stay with China. Chang'e Chang 5 lander landed. There is an awesome video of the stills that they took on the way down that you see it going, you know, down lower and lower and lower. And this is like we've got film of this from Apollo. But the thing is, the the image quality is pretty great in these digital sensors on these things now. So you get you get to see a very similar kind of thing oh, going over the landscape. You can see it pitch over and and then continue to drop and then hover at the very last minute and then plop down. Um, so it landed. Then they collected their samples. They got a load of samples. Their first attempt to collect it, they got more than four pounds of samples. They got lots of samples. Uh, they transferred that to their ascent vehicle. And then in an Apollo-style thing, there is an ascent portion of the lander that then blasts back off. And there's cool video of that from the bottom of the lander showing the top part going zip up out of view um, with the sun in the background. It's very cool. Lots of cool video for this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the ascent stage rendezvoused in orbit with Chang'e 5's orbiter. And then they transfer the samples and then the uh, the orbiter returns to Earth, and then what happens is the orbiter uh, releases the sample return module, and it bounces off the Earth's atmosphere to slow it down, and then re-enters, and is supposed to land in uh, Inner Mongolia in the desert in China. Again, probably snakes and spiders are all that's there. Uh, tomorrow, as we record this, December 16th. So it'll be a, a, a little bit of a replay of what we just saw with Hayabusa, where there will be a, uh, uh, you know, 
a thing coming in. They'll track it. They'll have little pictures of it, and then it'll be out in the desert. And then eventually, we'll get pictures of like people in in uh, in hazmat suits wandering in the desert with a with a metal container. And uh, but in the end, there'll be lunar samples returned to Earth for the first time since 1976. And lots of, as we just said about the other sample return mission, lots of scientists lined up to get. Uh, more fresh lunar samples because there aren't that many lunar samples returned over the years. So, uh, you know, the science will be exciting because they'll they'll have new samples to look at. And and uh, that was the whole point of this Chang'e 5 mission. So I want to talk a little bit about SpaceX, those folks. So you mentioned their cadence of launches this year being uh, just absolutely bonkers. Yeah, uh, they also have been working on Starship. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Texas, that's right. That's, that's right. They've built a series of prototypes. Most of them have met fiery deaths, but that's what prototypes do. You know, you build them to lose them. That's what I say. That's that's how it goes, right? Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta, you can't report on it if you're if you're covering space. You can't report on these explosions too breathlessly because in in rocket development, um, they happen. It's yeah. You've got to break a few rockets to make a space omelet, is what we're saying. Is that what we're saying? Mm, space omelet sounds <laughs> good. It's going to taste burned. Okay, so they had uh, SN8, which was the, the current prototype, uh, and this was uh, last week now. They had they were due for their high altitude test to sort of fly. It's more than just a hop. You know, we've seen that before. Uh, they had a target altitude of nearly eight miles. And so this took um, about seven minutes, again, at their facility in Texas. So this is a very shiny prototype with three of SpaceX's Raptor engines in the right. bottom of it. And, of course, with SpaceX, there's cameras everywhere, so you can see all what's going on, all live-streamed like it's a parade. And uh, it took off, and all three ignited, and uh, it seemed to be going well. It was ascending well, uh, topped out at about 41,000 feet. On the live stream, it looked like one or maybe two of the engines cut out during the test. It did. And I don't know whether that was entirely intentional or not, but definitely looks like one of them went out and then later another one went out. Um, It could be part of the test. I don't know. Uh, But it did look like sort of at the end of it, it was it was like hovering Mm -hmm. (laughs) sort of just like I can't go up anymore. (laughs) Running Running out of juice. Yeah, exactly. So it ascended, these engines cut out, whether intentionally or not, SpaceX really hasn't said. Uh, and it's a prototype test, so they, you know they don't have to say that much, I guess. And they've been very positive in what they have said, saying that they learned a lot and that this is just a, another step down the road to Starship. Uh, but the, the, the big thing with this test was the altitude, but also the belly flop maneuver, moving this prototype to its side to fall horizontally. Mm-hmm. And it's I, I say fall because it's not really flying. It's more like what the space shuttle did. You know, it's like you're yeah, falling way got, faster than you're moving horizontally. It's got fins. It's got fins on it. So the idea here is, yeah, it goes on its belly, and then this is, the, and it's able to kind of descend with a little bit of resistance and control because it's got these fins. Mm-hmm. Uh, the belly flop maneuver took all of about two seconds. It's like I hope they slow that down before people are on board. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. You'll see that space omelet again, you know? It's going to come mm-hmm. back up. Okay, so they, they moved this um, moved this horizontal uh, positioning to glide through the air and then reignite the three Raptor engines 
to basically swing the tail around and then it's supposed to make a soft landing. That SpaceX is well known for. When I watched it, it looked like it hit the ground, like basically out of control and exploded. Depending on what you read, it, it did touch down and then burst into flames, but it, it experienced a uh, rapid, unscheduled disassembly. Yeah, I would say the way that I would say it is, is first off, it's, talk about dramatic because it's coming down and you're thinking, uh, <laughs> is this thing going to just smash into the into the ground? And then it turns over and you're like, oh, it turns over and lights the engines. And so it's a very dramatic moment of like, I'm going to turn it over and land. And then we're like, okay, we know how SpaceX does this. But what happened, and if you watch the like super slow-mo versions of this that are out there, you can see it a little bit, which is... They need th- the three engines, I think, to all reignite in that moment mm-hmm. in order to stop them. And it didn't happen, right? Which goes back to the question of, like, were the engines cutting on and off intentional? Because sometimes that is the case with test flights. Or were they uh, just problematic? They were sporadically uh, igniting. Because what happened at the landing is they didn't all ignite, which means they couldn't re- reverse the thrust fast enough. Right. And while it landed... <laughs> At a higher speed than you'd like, it was also reducing its speed as it landed, just not fast enough. Right. And the end result is that it landed extremely hard to the point where the whole bottom of it kind of crumpled, at which point all the remaining fuel in it ignited boom. and boom. Yeah. It was very exciting. <laughs> it was, The whole thing was really exciting, actually. Yep. It is. There is an extra level when you're like, it may explode and it's okay because everybody thinks it will. And then either it's successful or there's an explosion. <laughs> like one way or another, something interesting is going to happen here. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we got the whole flight being very interesting. And then like there was a grand finale where they didn't, they didn't stick the landing, but it was a beautiful fireball. And it's SpaceX, so SN9 is like almost ready to go. And <laughs> they'll just they'll just gonna roll there's, another one out. And yep, there's another it. one ready to go. Then mm-hmm. they'll they'll continue it on. So it's uh it's very interesting. This is the, basically the upper stage of this rocket system that they're trying to develop. So in the end, the idea here is that the uh, this configuration would be put on the top of the the BFR uh, for for use in in a configuration that can take. Uh, payload or people very far away but it's going to be a long time before all of that stuff comes together but it's measurable progress alright so we mentioned Bearsheet a second ago that was the yeah. uh, Israeli nonprofit Space IL they had this lander and it um, had a hard <laughs> again <laughs> hard meeting with the moon hard hard landing they, they, uh, they think what happened is they were resetting a system that was their their radar to measure their distance from the ground. And while resetting the system, they made a mistake that turned off the thrusters, at which point it crashed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, close, but they didn't get there. And again, well, like I said, only China has landed anything on the moon softly (laughs) since 1976. So it's hard. It's a hard problem. And Israel tried it and and, uh, India tried it. So... Uh, if at first you don't succeed, go big the second time, I guess, is sort of the, the, the idea here, or at least uh, take what you've learned and do something different. The idea with Bearshoot 
Bereshit, the original, was, uh, can we do this? It was originally uh, Space IL, this nonprofit in Israel, was uh, founded to compete in the Lunar X Prize, right. which then lapsed and nobody landed on the moon So because only China has done it. So they didn't, didn't work, but they kept going on it and they built Bereshit. And so the idea here is rather than just redo that thing that was sort of a modest you know, let's learn how to build this thing. They are using what they learned there to design a new mission that they want to do. So they announced that mission, Bereshit 2. It's two landers and an orbiter this time. So it's a much more complex system than the last time. But they actually think it'll cost about as much as the first mission, about $100 million. I think there are two things going on there, which is first, they've laid the groundwork in building up their team and what they learned on the uh, on building Bereshit, and also probably the march of progress and time has allowed them to maybe reduce uh, the price of this stuff. But they didn't want to replay the old thing. So uh, these two landers are going to be a lot smaller than the original Bereshit, which weighed 1,300 pounds, about 600 kilograms. These are two 260-pound, 120-kilogram uh, landers, but there are two of them which is great. It gives them twice as many chances to land on the moon. Yeah. Um, and in terms of funding, uh, Space Isle is a nonprofit. They get, they will probably get some funding from the Israeli Space Agency. And they, and in the past, they also had private donors. There were some well-heeled private, you know, businessmen who donated to the original mission who are not currently involved in this, but they may return and there may be other donors who come in. And then they're also hoping to work with as many as seven international partners to help fund this mission. So it will probably end up being run by this Israeli nonprofit, but actually be a multinational mission to the moon. And they actually said the United Arab Emirates, which we've talked about here before, because they've had their own space program that they're building, that they are one of the countries that is going to help fund Bereshit too. About They think the international partners will be about half of the budget. And then they're hoping between the Israeli space agency and private donors that they will get the other half. Um, and, uh, you know, I it'll be interesting to watch this because, again, a lot of people trying to go to the moon now, but it is hard to do. And only China has been successful in all this time. So um, but everybody's trying again. I mean, nobody tried for several decades right. to land on the moon. But we're going to see a flurry of that in the next uh, in this decade. We'll see a flurry of moon landings for sure including, hopefully, at some point, people. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Bereshit 2 is, uh, they're hoping to launch in the first half of 2024. And you mentioned the orbiter that's part of this. Uh, it would circle the moon, this article says, for at least a couple of years. And right. then the, the landers will be at different parts of the moon. So they're, they're going to hopefully be really spread out in their operations. And, the, you know, when Bereshit 1 crash the party was over and so the idea here is that if they can get into orbit then they've got a mission regardless of what happens with the landers which is i think a good idea yeah it is and i mean they would have had that i mean they were super close i remember watching that uh unfold live and it being so heartbreaking that they were within striking distance yeah go bear sheet yeah i have some we have an announcement jason oh do, 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 do. Announcement. Liftoff single-handedly rebooted Russia's next-gen rocket program. You're welcome. We did it. We did it, everybody. I, I guess through sh through the power of shame? The, yes. <laughs> so we mentioned this last time that uh, Russia has been working on the Angara rocket, but it hadn't had a test in a long time. So this was 
last tested in 2014, so a full six years ago. And uh, they had a, a test then, and it was just like the like the early Saturn test where you have basically just ballast on board. You know, you're not putting a mission or a satellite or anything like that uh, atop a new launch vehicle. But uh, it is back. And so after that six-year pause, uh, it lifted off just uh, just yesterday as we record this, making the yes. third flight. Um, and again, using basically ballast. Uh, you're you're yeah. not you're not flying secret satellites, although that is the goal for national security payloads. But right. mass simulator is the phrase that gets used, which I, yeah. I love because the mass is not simulated. There is it's there's ma- actual it's a mass. mass. Yeah, is a mass that is simulating a, a satellite, basically. Well, maybe they poured in the mold of a satellite. You know, we don't know. Uh, oh, sure. <laughs> so that is uh, that's a step forward for this uh, for this really what's going to be a family of rockets, and so they're going to have just like the SLS will eventually have different strengths, if you will. So they'll have one like this is the Angara 5, which is the heaviest configuration, but there'll also be a more common configuration when you don't need to go into geosynchronous orbit, which is where this one yeah. uh, put, uh, that was its goal for its uh, mass simulation. <laughs> yeah, because Ru- Russia's basically still using proton rockets yeah. uh, from the 60s to carry, if they, if they need to reach... Uh, take heavy items into orbit or reach a geostationary orbit, which is higher, they have to use these protons. And the protons from the 60s, they're unreliable. They are really bad environmentally. They've got like hypergolic fuel, a lot of hypergolic fuel. It's like it's noxious and polluting and it's bad. Um, So they're trying to get rid of it. They've been trying for a very long time. Uh, Also, the proton is launched from Baikonur, cosmodrome in kazakhstan and uh, as we've talked about a lot they're trying to get out because that's not russia right. and it's they they rent the facility from kazakhstan but they're trying to establish a new uh a new cosmodrome in extreme eastern russia but also they have this launch for polar orbits a heavy launch facility north of moscow the plitesk cosmodrome and that's where this launch happened and those are because it's an extreme sort of northern location that's really for very specific orbits like polar orbits polar orbits are really great for spy satellites by the way defense payloads anybody Mm -hmm. but um and then the other one is going to be better for you know things like what we would see launched in america from uh from florida uh that are that are non-polar that are actual like equatorial orbits so uh so yeah they're working on it like and then uh, they've been working on it a long time, um, and apparently this rocket, a little similar to the SLS, which we will get to later on, has has had issues where it's running out of its its expiration date. Basically, they've been working on this thing for so long without launching it that they were ending the window where they the warranty was going to be good. Basically, so they needed to fire it off, and they did, and it was successful. So. Russia's attempts to get out from under the 60s era proton rockets and replace them with the Angara are moving forward again. And they and and Dmitry Rogozin, the head of Roscosmos, who says lots of stuff, but he says that they are planning two more Angara tests next year. So we'll see if that happens. But they're they're on the move. Yeah, with the first uh, commercial launch as early as the end of next year with a South yeah. Korean satellite. 
Yeah, I'm a little surprised that they did this launch with a mass simulator. Um, and I know that that ha- has happened and that SpaceX itself did that and with a you know, car. Yeah, but, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> but I, I feel like what we've seen with space is that some, at least some companies, may, maybe this is too risky. It was like too risky to do it. But like some companies are willing to take a chance on having their payload get blown up in exchange for a discount. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to find a client who's willing to do that, who built two satellites and is willing to lose one of them. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's un, unsurprising that uh, they might actually have a, a an actual payload next time, because once you've got this proof of concept, you can probably have a little more confidence that you can make it to orbit. Yeah. And it could be that if all this pans out, that Russia has you know the be- the beginning of a sort of new era of commercial flights that they could offer people and compete with a lot of American companies for that, that, those that jobs. That's the question in the long run is where will Russia's rockets fit into the launch, commercial launch world, and can they compete at that level? And there's a lot of skepticism about that. But at the very least, it allows them to take control of their own launches that they mm-hmm. do for for um, for their military purposes and their space purposes. Yeah. Get get out from under that old rocket from the sixties. Yeah, yeah, because it's dripping hypergolic things that are bad. Don't don't go near the proton rocket. Don't do it. Mm-mm. All right. Well, we have a lot of SLS stuff. I got four chapters oh. in the segment today. I'm going to be singing about the SLS pretty soon, but I should probably tell you about our uh, our our sponsor. Sounds good. This is this is great. I love this sponsor. This is Tuparev. Uh, can I say, like, we did that ad a while ago where we said you could work at Tuparev and somebody who listens to Liftoff now works at Tuparev. That's pretty, yeah, that's so it's awesome. Great. It's really cool. That's so great. <laughs> uh, anyway, more than a decade ago, a group of astronomers met successively for two years at the Heterogeneous Network of Telescopes Conference. Boy, they like putting words in here and seeing how I pronounce them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that conference took place in Tucson, Arizona and Göttingen, Germany. They would discuss the creation of a global network of interconnected astro- astronomical observatories. Because of the pandemic and the need of the scientific community to collaborate remotely on global projects, the need for such a network has been never more acute than it is right now. A couple of months ago, the Start Cluster team at Tuparev Technologies decided to finally implement this idea, and they are announcing the POLIS initiative. POLIS is short for Public Observatory Location and Information Service. And it's an open protocol of APIs that will allow anyone to obtain information about observatories around the world and in the solar system. And at later stages, it will allow different observatories to exchange information, collaborate on joint scientific projects, exchange observation times. The first experimental POLIS service is already up and running. An app and an information site are currently being implemented. Find out more about POLIS. Uh, You know, like Metropolis, Megalopolis, (laughs) stuff like that. Words that are, are... pronounceable uh go to github go to github.com slash astro dash polis a-s-t-r-o dash p-o-l-i-s like astropolis but with a so good where you are welcome you personally liftoff listener are welcome to join the initiative or go to starcluster.app where you can also subscribe for star cluster newsletters Hmm. everybody's got a newsletter it's true. Even even the stars. Even this star cluster has a newsletter. Anyway, thank you to Tuparev Technologies for making me pronounce lots of words. And most importantly, for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. Thank you, Tuparev. It is time for the SLS segment. 
space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. It wasn't really singing. It's like creepy whispering. Well, you read you read the, all the words. What am I going to sing after you read all the words? SLS segment is here. Oh, it's good. It's not, but I, it was something. I hope you're happy. <laughs> We're going to start with the most evergreen of SLS segment topics. The green run. Remember that? You're going to strap down the SLS to a test stand and fire it? Well, that was... The final of eight tests, test number seven, took place in early December. This was to power up the stage and start loading in propellant uh, to make sure that all of those uh, mechanical bits and processes were all good to go. A big thing with this, with loading the propellant, is making sure it stays at the right temperature. It has to be very, very cold propellant for rockets and that ended up being a bit of an issue so the liquid oxygen measured warmer than expected and so they stopped the fueling uh they fuel these things by the way uh there's barges with big oxygen tanks on them that just like pull Hmm. up next to tennis and i guess they run hoses over to them it's kind of funny uh so they they stopped they discovered the issue made some changes and that loading test is now back underway and they are hopeful that the green run can happen by the end of the year. Got a couple of weeks. We'll see. That's only, what, 15 days? 16 yeah. days? 16 days, yeah. You got a couple of weeks to get that in shape. <laughs> you got some people. holidays in there. Uh, so uh-huh. we'll see how that goes, but very close to the green run, which will be very exciting to watch uh, that thing fire up. All right. Chapter two. Okay. Dun-dun-dun. The first lunar mission. Chapter two. Chapter two, two, two. So... NASA has published a document called <clears throat> the Artemis Three Science Definition Team Report. Yay! Do you want the full number? It's SP two zero two five zero zero nine six zero two. Okay. No, I'm I'm trying to think of what uh if we can give that an acronym. As ter uh, nothing. I got nothing. There's no vowels right. except the first apostrophe. One. <laughs> it's pronounced apostrophe, but it's actually as. <laughs> All right, tell me about this. Tell me about their document. This is getting real. There's PDFs. It's got to be real. There's PDFs. Government documents are why people are here. Not the excitement of launching things into space, but government documents about launching things into space. That's why we're here. I don't have a rocket launch to tell you about, so I have this PDF. Okay. And and you know it's full of good stuff because there's a full-page picture of uh, Harrison Schmidt posing with the American flag on Apollo 17, so... We got that going USA, for us. USA. I'm loving chapter two. This is the best chapter it's yet. It's going so well. Okay, so this is a big report outlining objectives for Artemis 3, which will be the first, hopefully, crew on the moon in this new program. So Artemis 1 is the uncrewed launch sometime in 21, early 22. And then Artemis 2 basically goes around the moon and back, Apollo 8 style. And then Artemis three is supposed to touch down uh, on the moon. We're going to talk about the human landing system that makes that possible in a second. Uh, but if you land on the moon, you got to have a plan on what you do while you're at the moon. And so this PDF, for all of its pages, outlines basically three mission objectives. One is everyone's favorite sample return. So bring back a bunch of moon rocks. The minimum here is 35 kilograms with a goal of 100 kilograms 
of Moon to bring back with you. Mission objective two is uh, placing and operating scientific instruments on the surface of the moon. So we've talked about that with the Apollo missions uh, that we have covered that have landed where they were, you know, have these experiments they do on the surface, right? Uh, so re um, bring that stuff back to life. And then surface science by crew members, probably mostly based around geology and in particular, depending on where they land, which isn't yet to be finalized, uh, this could really focus on finding signs of water ice. So three objectives. They are all sort of broad at this point, except for the sample return. It's like you're just going to bring stuff back. But as far as what scientific instruments and what crew members may be doing, that's a little undefined by this document for a couple of reasons. Uh, the big one is that the the final landing place for Artemis three has not been determined. They are narrowing it down. We believe, based on previous conversations from NASA, that it could be near the South Pole, but we don't know that yet. Uh, if there's no gateway, that's a little bit trickier. So that is still a little bit to be determined. And that means that exactly what sort of scientific endeavors would take place can't quite be finalized yet, if that makes sense. I mean, they have some broad goals. They want to learn about uh, the relationship between the moon and the earth and their creation. They want to uh, learn about the makeup of uh, the moon below the surface. They want to look at uh, what sort of what sort of the building blocks formed the moon and what is happening to the moon in the future as far as strikes and things being removed from the moon. There's lots of good stuff in here, but it's all very, uh, we don't, it's not quite sure what we're doing quite yet. So, so I'll save you the read. Those are the big three things. Thank you. All of this is uh, reliant on NASA's human landing system, the HLS. And this program has a requirement that the lander can deliver deliver at least 100 kilograms of equipment uh, in the form of sample return containers, cameras, scientific instruments, you know, the stuff that you would need on the moon. Uh, But this document points out that that may actually be too low of a requirement and kind of argues that maybe that should be that system should be more capable in terms of what it can move to the moon and then, of course, back either to the Orion or to the the gateway. This is complicated because the human landing system is way under budget from what, or underfunded from what NASA requested in its budget. It looks like in 2021, it's only going to get about a third of the requested funding. And you can't land on the moon without a landing system. And even if you do, I don't think it's going to be as beefy as some of these uh, scientific objectives would like. But that's a big question mark when we talk about 2024, right? You, you, You have the SLS itself, you have Orion, but you've got to have the lander as well. And uh, you don't need the lander by 24, but you need it a couple years after that. Yeah, and the so. fact that the – well, you do – I mean, you do need it by 24. You need it for 24 if Mike Pence is in charge. Right, which he's about to not be. And so the numbers will change. But you do ultimately need it. And that's the thing that's always been – hitting me about this whole system is that although they've been talking about 
lunar landers and you know jeff bezos is out there under his blue moon lander and all that and, mm-hmm. they've, and they've now they've selected as we've talked about here they selected some companies they're working on this this is all kind of like being put together but it's very hard to imagine that a moon lander for people is going to go from kind of nothing right now to in use certainly in four years uh, that is a really tight timetable, and that's that's actually the part of this. I I have pretty great confidence we can get people to lunar orbit. Like SpaceX is trying to do it too. There 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 is a lot of confidence that we are going to be able to get people to lunar orbit again pretty soon. But getting them down on the surface, I'm not sure how much confidence I have in that part of it because that seems to really have trailed behind, and that's going to be the gating factor there. We're going to be able to do Apollo eight style stuff, but what about what about people? What about boots on the moon, basically? Mm-hmm. And that that part seems much more hopey and dreamy than a lot of the stuff that's in Artemis. Yeah, no, I agree. Also, can I mention the the mission objectives are fine and they're they're vague, but they'll, they'll firm it up. But I, it very much feels like this is ripped right from the Apollo playbook, right? Like, yeah, dude. <laughs> the, they're they're the point. Mission objective number one is people on the moon, right? That's one, one A, one B, one C, people on the moon. And then like, well, what will they do when they're there? Well, they'll be on the moon. And also, yeah, they'll pick up some rocks. They'll put down some instruments. Now, pointing out that uh, sample returns you can do without people. Putting instruments on the surface you can do without people. So then they're like, yeah, but let's do some stuff that you need people for. Like, mm-hmm. they, they, and, and yes, the people picking up the rocks are going to pick up more interesting rocks because they're trained to do that. And we saw that with Apollo and playing the, putting the instruments down, um, having people to deploy the instruments can actually be more efficient and, and then doing other surface science. Yes, that's all true, but it is also true that this is kind of this first human mission to the surface is very much a replay of Apollo because the goal is really to get people down there. And then what's different this time is there is a, a a timeline for what happens next because that is if if nasa seems to have learned any lesson from the apollo program it is that you can't just go to the moon and not have a plan for what you do next so there's lots of talk about doing uh you know leaving hardware down there and building kind of a lunar base and being able to do that and having extended visits and stuff like that which is great but artemis 3 is you know an Apollo replay. It is. And that's not a bad thing. It, it's just that the more you think about it, the more you realize that that is, that is really what it is, is, is let's do Apollo 11 again. Yeah, I know. I definitely had that thought reading this and, and putting it together. And, you know, my hope is, and I think the expectation is that once you do all this stuff that Apollo did, then you're freed up to do a lot more. Right. And the tech's going to be better, and the, the lunar rover is probably not going to be like a lawn chair on a electric motor. And there's lots of Artemis three may not have a rover at all, so you no, may just be no, walking around. No, but yeah, eventually no, that, it'll be enclosed. And you yeah. know, we saw yeah. some of that when we were in um, in Houston in Houston last year. Yeah, that's right. That, back when we could go places, mm-hmm. I remember that. Uh, so yeah, Artemis three won't have a rover. Probably this this document costs for one, but like there, there's not. No, again, it seems not coming. It seems unlikely that they'll get there with the first one. Yeah. Um, and it, it's possible too that NASA could have Artemis three and future lunar mission, lunar missions be supplied by commercial launches. So, say that you have a rover or eventually a habitat, right? You could put that 
a top Falcon Heavy or something and yeah that's the CLPS stuff right. that's you, you can put you can put not just probes on the moon but you can put equipment on the moon you could put a habitat you could put the you could put the rover you could mm-hmm. put the, all the instruments you could put um put uh, materials put you could put put oxygen and water and all sorts of stuff on the moon oh yeah for and then all you really have to do is pay for the 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 human landing the very very expensive human landing part uh, just for the humans and some basic stuff, which would take pressure off of the human landing system totally for, for having bigger capacity than the current requirement. Right. So, yeah. So that is uh, that's chapter two, the uh, first lunar mission. Good chapter. I like that coming chapter. soonish. Question mark. <laughs> chapter three is uh, the Artemis team. So we, we yeah. just mentioned Mike Pence. He just oversaw his final Space Council meeting. I watched it live. Did you? I did. How, was um, it exciting? I it was. Mm, parts of it were exciting, and parts of it were super boring because it was a government meeting with lots of. Uh, I'd like to applaud this person. Honestly, what I found most fascinating about it was how it was very clearly Mike Pence and kind of Bridenstine. Uh, but very much Mike Pence saying goodbye and highlighting all of the things that he thinks that the Space Council has accomplished during the Trump administration mm-hmm. um, and yet couldn't actually make it a goodbye because the official policy of the Trump administration seems to be that they, even though they lost the election, that they won the election, or at least they have to claim they won the election until presumably January 20th, when they'll look around and not be in power anymore. Yeah, And so, and it's a shame really, because I mean, Mike Pence is really good at, at saying, let's give, give me applause for this thing that we did. And this thing that we did, he is a, a skilled politician and that kind of stuff. And so we did that, but you know, on, on the other hand, they did revive this space council and Pence, it's one of his most visible things that he's done. And, and they have made an effort and Bridenstine has done a good job. And in some ways it's a muted victory lap, like that they you deserve. You put in four years doing this work, and generally you you've done some interesting and good stuff, um, but you can't actually admit that it's goodbye. <laughs> that was weird. It was weird, but um, that's okay. There there were some big announcements at the end of the very long, very long thing. There were there was the big announcement, which is the astronaut core for Artemis. Yeah, so this is a group of 18 American astronauts, NASA astronauts. On the webpage, it says international partners can include their crew members later. 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 Not now. Later. Uh, The group of 18, there are some super experienced astronauts on this list. There are also some that have not flown in space. And Bridenstine says it is just the first batch. There will be more named to this. Um, but these are the uh, the first 18. Now, we don't have much in terms of crew allocation yet, so we don't know who the first woman on the moon is going to be, but it'll be one of these 18. Yeah, they did say that, that, that although the more people will be added later, that you can expect that the first crews are going to come out of this group. Which makes that, sense. The, that, that presumably the first americans on the moon since the apollo program will come from this group of 18 nine men nine women um uh, unclear i've definitely seen some people say 
maybe it's two women landing on the moon. <laughs> maybe there are no men there. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be. But the the selection here is is 50-50. And it's a pretty great group, including a lot of people we've talked about over the years on this podcast. So a lot of familiar names, as well as some new names. And a lot of them are still working, right? That's the other funny thing. Like Victor Glover is on the ISS right now, yeah. <laughs> but he's he's on this list. Yep. So there's there's a lot of people who are either about to go up to the ISS or at the ISS or just came back to the ISS. But what will happen is they will kind of rotate through and then their next missions are going to be Artemis. Pretty cool. Yeah. And we'll uh, we'll see more of these people as more information rolls out about these missions. Exactly. Which will be sometime into the new administration i think yeah i think i think so i think uh if they do the artemis one launch um that's about the point where they would probably start talking about who's on artemis two at Mm -hmm. the very least Uh, but that may be a while we'll we'll have to see what happens with sls uh c chapter one for more (laughs) (laughs) that's right well we started with hardware and we'll end with hardware chapter four the Artemis One service module. So I want you, Jason, you're at home at your desk. You can close your eyes. If you're listening and you're not driving, if you're safe, close your eyes. I'm going to describe a spacecraft to you. Visualize. You have a capsule at the top. It's mm-hmm. pretty shiny. Astronauts go in the capsule. My capsule is awesome. It's got a heat shield. It's got some parachutes in there. Right. Hatch. Underneath it is a service module where things like oxygen and water mm-hmm. and propellant all that goes down there right what what decade is it <laughs> i was gonna say I'm, I'm i'm literally picturing the 1970s is the decade i'm picturing because i'm picturing the exploded side of the service module in apollo 13 oh no <laughs> that's a famous uh, service module yes service module so uh the news here is that the European service module, the ESM, built by Airbus, has uh, completed its acceptance review and has been handed over to NASA. So NASA now owns this. It is the service module for Artemis One, the uncrewed flight on the first SLS. Um, I was poking fun earlier. I mean, clearly the recipe works. That's why Apollo used it. That's why others, have, you know, <laughs> that's why Soyuz uses it. That's why... Artemis is going to use it. This is a, a yeah. tried and true uh, setup. So this service module uh, will hold unpressurized cargo, all the engines, including one AJ-10 from Aerojet Rocketdyne. And this is uh, an engine that has a really long history. If you go back and read about the Atlas and Thor rockets, uh, it was also the main engine on the Apollo service module. So in Apollo wow. 13, where they were worried about, you know, the explosion damaging the service module engine and then cracking all the way to the, the bell housing, that was a um, a earlier version of the AJ-10. Tr- tried and true and trusted. Those are the three Ts. Apparently the, um, the OMS for the space shuttle, also uh, an AJ-10. The orbital maneuvering system, oh. wild, yeah, they're everywhere. They, it's this is yeah, this is a really like off the rack rocket engine, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's okay, uh, that's totally fine. So, mm-hmm. so this is going to go through. Um, it's it's gone through its acceptance review. We spoke last time about a uh, repair needed 
Um, so that's that's also in this mix. But uh, Orion keeps uh, coming right along for this Artemis One launch. And uh, hopefully they can get the repairs made we spoke about last time. Hopefully the green run takes place and everything comes together, you know, a year from now or so. That's great. I, uh, it's funny. Every time we mention Aerojet Rocketdyne on the, on the podcast, I get a little excited because that's a home team thing. They're from Sacramento. Um, this just totally obscure, uh, rocket manufacturer, but I always knew about Aerojet because when I grew up, I grew up sort of near Sacramento and it was like the pride of Sacramento. Every time rocket Aerojet did anything, it was big news. Um, and they're still they're still kicking like they merged with Rocketdyne and uh, still based in Sacramento. And they are making, you know, these rockets that never went out of style, these engines that never went out of style. It's pretty amazing. The AJ-10 survives. That's a that's a good bit of trivia. We'll have to do a rocket parts draft someday. Oh, that's good. It <laughs> would go high, I think. Yeah, it could be. Could be. So, well, that uh, that concludes the SLS segment this week. It does. And it also, Stephen, it concludes liftoff for this year. It does. So we're going to be taking the next fortnight off. Uh, you mentioned this. So this is a tradition on liftoff. So yeah. we will be back on January 12th with our next episode. We hope everyone has a happy and safe holiday and new year. Yes, indeed. And uh, we'll reflect on, on the year in space in 2020, perhaps a little bit when we come back in a month. Sounds good. But it's good to take a little rest and refresh for us over the holidays. And we hope you have uh, good holidays. And, and yes, stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, we love you. And we want you to keep listening to Liftoff. Because uh, I sing those songs that are bad for you. That's right. Wow. That was, that was special. If you want to find links uh, to the stories we spoke about, head on over to relay.fm slash liftoff slash 139. While you're there, you can get in touch via email. You can become a member and support Liftoff directly. Thank you all who are Liftoff members. Uh, members of Relay FM get access to a bunch of cool stuff, a Discord, monthly member-only shows, a newsletter, lots of fun stuff. So you can learn more on the website. You can find Jason online. He is Snell on Twitter. You can find me there as ISMH. And until early next year, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all.